Genesis 37 this morning. Genesis 37. By the way, my email address is pastor underscore Andy <laughs> at jibchurch.org. Let me repeat that again. Pastor underscore Andy at jibchurch.org. You can fire those emails away. It is my experience, and experience is only so much, but it is my experience that Jacob's family isn't all that uncommon, and that the way his family conducted itself, the way that they lived, is really not much different from many families, including families that on the outside look like good, solid, Christian families. This morning, and in the next few weeks, it's going to be really easy to sit there and sit there self-righteously. Come on, you know how to do that in church, don't you? Like, this isn't for me, this is for the next person, right? It's for the person in front of me or the person behind me. But this is what I know. Families are made up of people, duh, and that because they're made up of people, because we are sinful people, families have to deal with sin. If you are a part of the family and you deal with sin, raise your hand right now. If you are not raising your hand, you must be some kind of droid or something. All families have to deal with the effects of sin, don't they? Husbands and wives, fathers and children, mothers and children, siblings, and then, and then, you, then you combine into that, not even talking about this, then you add into that extended families. I'm not even, I don't have time for that this morning. But if you have a sibling, if you have a mom, if you have a dad, if you have children, you wrestle with your own sin and you bring your sin into those family relationships, don't you? And on top of that, your family is going to sin against you. Stop looking at your wives right now, husbands. Jacob's family, and I remind you, a patriarch of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's just call it what it is. His family is a train wreck, right? His family is a total disaster. He's got, he's got boys who can't control their tempers going out and wiping out whole cities. He, he, he's, got, he's, got, he's got kids who, who can't get along. We're going to find out next week that, he, that, that he's, got, he's got a son who is absolutely just, he's a dirtbag. I don't know how else to say it, but he's a dirtbag. You got a father who plays favorites. You got a you got a blended family. Some of you in this room know what it's like to have a blended family. Imagine a blended family with four mothers. No thank you. And then he's gone on top of that a son who he has favored and then by his own actions he has further alienated his own brothers. We saw that last week, didn't we? And this morning, I want us to see, when we consider the rest of chapter 37, that what the text reveals for us this morning, and the text reveals for us something that every single one of us 
probably would like to turn our eyes away from, but, but we need to look at it square in the face. We look at it with a mirror of God's Word held up to our own hearts, and that's this, that, that sin is really powerful, and the effect of sin, when we don't properly deal with it, has devastating effects on our families. But I also want you to see this, and I hope you see this before we leave the text this morning, that that in spite of every one of our foolish acts and our rebellion against God, in spite of that, not because we deserve it, in spite of the fact that, that our families are made up of broken, fallen people, in spite of all of that, God will always accomplish His purposes. Do you believe that this morning, church? If we didn't believe that, then we wouldn't have had a child dedication here this morning. We'd have just kind of trusted the village to raise our kids and hope for the best, right? So with that in mind, Genesis chapter 37, I'm going to pick up reading the account in verse 12, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. So he's talking about Joseph, okay? Remember, verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept a saying in mind. This had to do with the two dreams that he dreamt. Verse 12 now, now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And he said to, said to him, here, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. Remember, what is he wearing, church? He's wearing this really gaudy coat, right? Okay, do you suppose it might have shimmered a little bit in the sun, church? I'm trying to get your minds active here. Are you imagining the scene here? They see him from afar. Okay, you can't miss this guy right? And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors, or that, that robe that had the long sleeves and the, and the long tail on it, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Let me say, they sat down to eat. Okay? They have, no, they have no conscience whatsoever here. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camel, camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. 
Then Judas said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand, our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is not your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And let's pray this morning. Father, every single one of us in this room needs to know the depth of our own sin, the, the depth of our own rebellion. And before we even embark on this, forgive us for thinking that we would not be like Joseph's brothers. Left to ourselves and apart from your grace in our lives, we'd have done the exact same thing. So this morning, remove the self-righteousness and allow us to see our hearts honestly for what they are this morning. Use the word as a mirror to our own souls this morning, I pray. I pray that this familiar account would not be so familiar that, that we would, would look way ahead to see how this all ends, but that we would look right here in this moment as it is recorded for us and see what you have for us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by pointing out Joseph's obedience. I want to point out Joseph's obedience. In verses 12 through 17, we have this account of what happens here. Let me give you some geographical idea of what we're dealing with here so that you understand all that's taking place here. To go from Hebron or Hebron to Shechem is 50 miles, okay? It's not like you and I jumping in the car and running into Columbus and going on the other side of Columbus, you know, hitting 270 and going around and maybe out to London or something covering 50 miles. This is 50 miles, probably plus or minus about five days of journey, okay? If you remember from chapter 34, and we saw this last month, Shechem is not a place where the sons of Jacob are going to be well received. But the boys have taken the sheep up to Shechem, and they're pasturing them there, and now Jacob is kind of concerned about the well-being of his sons. Well, who wouldn't be when you found out that they were taking them to Shechem? And so... Notice who's absent from actually doing the work now. Who's absent from doing the work? It's Joseph, right? 
The last time Joseph went to work with his brothers, it didn't end well, did it? And so now, now what, what has Jacob done? Jacob is now sought to do what every parent in their mind wrestles with, and that is, got to protect my children. How many of you wrestle with the idea of protecting your children? Some of us go to big extremes, don't we? Like, we put safeguards on every corner in the house. And like, you can't plug anything into an outlet in your house because it's got them stupid little plastic things in there. Some of you, this is hitting close to home right now, isn't it? You protect your kids. Like, they will never, ever experience a harmful influence in the world. They're never getting a cell phone. They're never going to watch TV. They're never going to get on the internet. And what you find out is if you try to do that, you still can't bubble wrap your kids enough. Have you found that out, parents? Like, okay, and and, and I'll just be honest with you. There are some who homeschool for the wrong reasons. Like, I'm going to homeschool because only I can protect my children from the world. I I got to tell you this. If that's the reason you're homeschooling, you're doing it for the wrong reason. There's only one Savior, and His name is Jesus. You can't be your kid's Savior. Now, I'm not downing homeschool. If you know, you know that we homeschooled all five of our children. But I'm saying this, and you need to understand this this morning. You will never protect your children more than God already is going to protect them. Now, does that mean we just willy-nilly just throw our kids out there to the world and let the world eat them alive? No. But here now is Jacob, and he knows he's got a situation on his hand, and so he's going to try and protect Joseph. But on the very other hand, in his attempt to protect Joseph, he makes one of the really dumbest decisions a dad could do. Come on, think with me. Is this not stupid? Okay, I don't trust your brothers, I don't want you working with them, but I'm going to send you five days away where, where I can't really observe what's going on, and I want you to check on your brothers. Nothing could go wrong with this, right? I'm sure Joseph has some concerns in his own mind as he heads out, but notice Joseph's willingness to be obedient. Notice verse 13, here I am, kind of reminds me of the young Samuel whenever, whenever he has the dream and like God's talking to him and says, Samuel, Samuel, he says, here I am, here's Joseph, hey, I'm ready to go, what do you need me to do, dad? And if I'm Joseph and I get to where I think my brothers are supposed to be, how many of you would think like, like Scarberry does? I showed up, they weren't there. I don't know what's going on. I came, Dad, they weren't there. I don't know. Anybody else with me on that? Yeah, I did what you asked me to do. I obeyed you, Dad. Joseph diligently then goes another 14 miles north to Dothan. He's now 64 miles away from home. He's not under Jacob's protection, but I submit to you, church, that he is right exactly where God wants him and needs him to be. What we're going to see and what we read here is is that Dothan is the place where Joseph is abandoned, right? Now, think with me. In Joseph's mind, is God anywhere near to him in these moments? Think like a man. Don't think like somebody who's been in Sunday school already this morning, okay? Do you really think that Joseph's thinking that God's with him now when he's in the bottom of this pit? 
No, it's just Joseph against the world, and he doesn't even have the wherewithal to print the t-shirt. It's Joseph against the world, and it's not looking good right now, is it? But I want to remind you of another passage of Scripture. Dothan is a really interesting town. Some of you may already recognize it. Dothan, I think I've seen that somewhere before. This is just kind of a little tidbit I'm throwing in on the side. This is free, okay? I'm not charging you for this. Keep your finger here and go with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, and I want you to see this. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, Verse 8, once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place, be my camp. And, and the man of God, that's, that's Elisha, was sent word, and, and, and he was warned, beware, verse 9, that you do not pass this, this place, for the Syrians are going down there. In other words, your life's in danger, Elijah. But what does Elisha do? Those of you who know your Bibles, what do you know about Elisha? Does he take, does he take warnings well? No, he's a prophet of God. He's like, if that's the place you don't want me to go, guess where I'm going? Verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And, and the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than who are, who are with them. Okay, it's Elisha and his servant, and he says he has the audacity to say, the, more who are, the ones who are with us are more than the ones who are out there. And the servant is like, I see no one. Did Joseph see anybody in the pit? Did church, did Joseph see, wake up church. Did Joseph see anybody in the church, in the pit, church? Did he? He didn't see anybody in the church either. There was no church then, attract you. Yeah, okay. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire from all around. Guess what city that took place in, church? It was in Dothan. Let me ask you this, is the same God there hundreds of years before with Joseph and Dothan, the same God who was there with Elisha? Church, is it the same God? Yet we have two strikingly different accounts of what happens in Dothan, don't we? One, we have a man who is totally left alone, feels totally lonely, gone, no friend in the world now, can't trust anybody, can't trust his dad to do the right thing, and he certainly can't trust his brothers. He is left on his own. Second one, we got the prophet of God with the servant of God, and, and all of a sudden he opens his eyes and shows him, there is an army of God. You know what? I'll do anything with the army of God with me, right? Back to Genesis chapter 37, I point you to that. Because here's the thing, if God wants to intervene, he will intervene, won't he? If God wants to intervene, he'll intervene. And here's the thing, you and I wrestle with the fact that God doesn't always intervene. How many of you have ever wrestled with that? God, why aren't you doing anything right now? God, God, why did you allow this to happen? God, God, do you not see what's happening because that happened here? And I would submit to you, because his ways are not our ways, we don't always understand where God is at work. And God is just as much at work in Joseph's life as he was in Elisha's life. 
And here's a painful truth that we have to wrestle with. Joseph's obedience took him right to the trial. Let me say that again. Joseph's obedience took him right to the trial. And let's just go ahead. I know what you're thinking. That's not fair. Because we think we should have this arrangement with God. I will do what you tell me to do as long as you make my life easy. Come on, don't you think that way? I will do what you tell me to do as long as you make it easy. And when things aren't easy and when, and when trials come my way, then guess what? All bets are off. I guess you're not a faithful God. And in doing so, we malign God more than if we had just shouted curse words at Him. Can I say this to you? Obedience is no guarantee of ease of life or pain-free living. It's not. If it were, the world would be coming to church every week. If it was just as easy as showing up and coming to church and maybe reading your Bible a couple times a week, everybody would be doing it if it was a guarantee that we would never have hardship. So here's Joseph, and he's doing the right thing, and he suffers harm because of it. Secondly, I want us to see this morning the fruit of bitterness. I want us to see the fruit of bitterness. Beginning in verse 18 and down through verse 28, we have this account. And, and I pointed out when we were reading this, Joseph, Joseph in that coat would have to be noticeable, right? And what you have here is you have bitterness now taking action. Ephesians 4.31 tells us, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger be put away, with, away from you. Elsewhere in the, in the New Testament in Hebrews, bitterness is described as a root. Don't think of like a little root for clover. Think of deep root for dandelion. When was the last time you actually got a whole dandelion root out? We, we'll talk about that later. Normally, my dandelion roots come out and you hear that snap and you're like, oh. That means there's going to be 28 more right here on this spot. Right? It's the way that works, Right? Thank Adam in the curse, right? But when we don't respond right to life circumstances, resentment comes in and then jealousy and then resentment and jealousy can become hatred and this deep-rooted hatred will become this even deeper-rooted bitterness. And this is where we find Joseph's brothers. How do I know this? Because as soon as they see him, where do their minds go? Oh, Joseph must be here because dad wants a report. No. Their minds go, you know what? He needs to die. This dude doesn't just need roughed up by his brothers. This dude needs to die. He said to one another, verse 19, here comes the dreamer. And so let's kill him. Let's kill him. This fancy, smug, coat-wearing sight leads them to premeditate murder. Now I ask you, I ask you, did Joseph's brothers wake up that morning and, and did they think these thoughts at breakfast before they went out to take care of the herds? Did they have a conversation like, this would be a good day to kill somebody? Before you judge them harshly, Think about your own life and some of the horrendous things that you've done in your life. 
things that you're ashamed for anybody to know. Did you wake up the morning of that day that you did those and say to yourself, this would be a good day to do this? Men, did you wake up and say, this would be a good day to view porn on the internet? Women, did you wake up and say, this would be a good day to be disrespectful to my husband? Children, did you wake up and say, this would be a really good day to test whether or not my mom and dad will let me live if I defy them? I dare say none of us woke up thinking that, did we? And yet at the end of the day, when we put our head on the pillow, we're like, how did that just happen? You ever been there? You ever been there? I can tell you how it happened. Because I know in my own heart, and I know what the Word says, it's because you and I didn't take sin seriously up to that point. And the brothers didn't take sin very seriously. And in fact, this whole pack and mob mentality breaks out until Reuben steps in in verse 21. And before we give Reuben too much credit, Reuben in verse 21 as the oldest sees an opportunity where he can get back in dad's good graces, doesn't he? This is a great opportunity for Reuben. Okay, guys, don't kill him. Put him in a pit. And Reuben's in his mind is like, you know what? I'm going to go rescue him. I'm going to take him back to dad, tell them everything that my brothers had done, and dad will love me again. But Reuben makes it clear as the oldest that, that he is not to die, right? <laughs> so when you come to verse 23, when Joseph gets there, this is one of those places sometimes that the English doesn't do a good job of explaining what the Hebrew says. That happens sometimes in translation. It says that, they came, that Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. That word stripped is an interesting word. Our English word strips. We understand. In our minds, we're thinking he gets there and they just start ripping his clothes off. It's the same word in the Hebrew for skinning an animal. They're not being gentle here. In fact, to use a word that gets overused sometimes, they're abusing this guy. They're abusing this guy. Joseph is getting totally mistreated. They're physically harming him. Remind yourself, was Joseph doing the right thing, church? And it's the age-old question that you have to wrestle with. Why do, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Joseph's doing the right thing. He's going into harm's way. He's doing it because his father has asked him to do it. And, and before you know it, he is getting the snot beat out of him, and he ends up totally naked in the bottom of a pit. No good deed goes unpunished, huh? He's alone. He's afraid. He's hurting. Yet, 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 he is firmly in the hand of a loving God who has him exactly where he wants him. You say, that sounds so easy for you to say. I, I don't know about you, but I have no other filter to run that through than what the Word of God says. Because I'll be honest with you, humanly speaking, I don't and I can't even comprehend why some of the bad things that happen to people happen to them. 
And if I don't have a God who's in control that I can rest in, then I've got nothing. I've got nothing. But what a warning about the danger of unresolved jealousy and anger. Can I say this to you this morning? If you are toying with sin, maybe you're toying with jealousy, maybe you're toying with anger, and maybe you just say, that's the way God made me. I'm a redhead. I've always got a short fuse. If you are playing with that sin, make no mistake, it will lead to further sin. Which brings me to my final point, the result of sin here. I want you to see plainly the result of sin here. You think about it, and I mentioned this before, but you think about some of the most heinous sins that are in our world today, that are in our society. Do, do child rapists just start out raping children? Studies tell us, where does that sin begin? Either begins with them being abused or them exposing themselves to pornography, doesn't it? You think about people who murder, like it was just a crime of passion. Well, that crime of passion was passion that you didn't deal with correctly, right? You see, sin always produces pleasure. The Bible even admits that, right? There is pleasure in sin for a what? For a season. There is satisfaction in telling somebody off. Come on, haven't you ever experienced that before? I am going to tell you what I really think of you right now. And when you walk away, you're like, man, that felt good. Until what? Until you feel the guilt. I just did something I shouldn't have done. There, there is pleasure in gossiping about somebody and joining in a group. I feel so compelled about this because our kids are going back to school and, 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 and not, junior high, middle school, junior high, that's how old I am, it's middle school. Middle school and high school is nothing but a breeding ground for drama and, and just like the kids literally eating on one another. Is it not? And it doesn't mean just public schools. It's, it happens in Christian schools. It even happens in your home school. You know why? Because they've seen their parents do it. Don't get on your kids. Don't get on your kids for gossiping about people and go home and have the pastor for lunch. Right? There, there is a measure of joy and, and some glee in sin. It's really fun to pick on somebody when they're not there and talk about how bad they are, right? It's kind of funny. It's great. The brothers enjoyed a measure of revenge here. They, they took some measure of, of, oh, we finally showed this dreamer what this is all about. And, and, and how great do you look now when you're in the pit all naked and we got your coat up here, Joseph? And they're so, so easily able to do this that they can sit down and have lunch. There's no remorse. Hey, we got hamburgers on the Barbie over here. Come on, let's eat up. 
hearing the moans of their brother in the bottom of this pit. This dreamer's not dreaming anymore. But, but, but there is a pleasure in sin for a season, but make no mistake, sin also produces every time harmful and devastating consequences. Sin is what separates us from a holy God. Is there anything more devastating than that? Church, is there anything more des- devastating than being separated from a holy God? Sin is what Jesus bore. Every piece of gossip, every murderous act, every lie that you tell, this is what Jesus bore in our place on the cross, and he had to face the full wrath and fury of a holy God because of our sin. Think about that with every angry response we get, or every jealous thought we think, or every lustful look that we take. Jesus had to take the full wrath of God for that. Let's see how this fruit bears fruit specifically in this case. So, the first thing I want to point out is this, that this rash act that they do produces more sin. And isn't that true? Sin usually produces more sin. That's what it does. You see, now, now, now this sin of, of stripping Jacob and throwing him in this pit, it has produced a world of like, okay, we got him in there. Now what are we going to do? This is great. We got him. But then, then someone's like, okay, what now? And what it does is it produces lies, a cover-up, this elaborate ruse to, ruse to deceive Jacob in all Ten have to participate in it. Nine brothers sell Joseph while Reuben's gone, and then Reuben comes back. He had this plan, and the, and the plan is totally ruined because his brothers did something different. They had to, they had to act on it. And notice that this cover-up, this further sin produces pain. It produces pain. Look at verse 32. The, 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 the lie of verse 32, does it just strike you? They bring in the coat and they say to the dad, hey, can you identify whose coat this is? Like, I would never tell a lie like that. Yeah, we all would. Hey, dad. Hey, dad. And they, and they, and they feign all this concern, you know. Maybe they even come in out of breath. Dad, dad, can you tell us whose coat this is? <laughs> yeah, we know. And it produces great pain. In fact, Jacob is inconsolable in his grief. First he's lost Rachel. Now Joseph is dead. And, and according to verse 35, not one of his sons or daughters can, 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 easy for me to say, can console him in his grief. Right? Mark it down. Sin produces pain every time. Which is why, parents, it's not a bad thing to introduce pain in your children's life when they disobey. It's not a bad thing. See, kids need to learn early on. I'm not, please don't hear me say it's not a bad thing to just totally abuse your kids. Did I say that, church? 
But is it good for our kids to experience pain when they sin? And by the way, there's a variety of ways to experience pain. Sometimes losing their Xbox can be the most painful thing they've ever experienced. And sometimes teenagers, the teens are going to hate me for saying this, sometimes a teen losing that precious little thing that, that is a computer that they live on, losing that for a couple of weeks or a month could be the most painful thing they've ever experienced, but probably the best thing that they've ever experienced. If our kids don't learn that sin is painful, guess what? The world will teach them one day. And some of you in here could just parade up here and, and, and tell us the pain that sin has brought into your own life, couldn't you? Sin brings pain. Sin also changes lives. Is it fair to say that the sin of Joseph's brothers totally changed Joseph's life? If you don't think so, and one day Joseph went from being this princely type of guy, he's the next in line to be the patriarch of God's chosen people, and he went from being that to being a commodity. Tell me sin doesn't change lives. He went from living in the tents of Jacob to living as a slave in Potiphar's slave dwellings. And it's really easy at this point because we know the beginning from the end, but what you may not realize is it took a long time for Joseph to, to escape that. And let's be honest, real life isn't that way. Whenever you and I experience the pain of sin, we have no lasting hope apart from Christ that things are ever going to get better. Tell that to the guy who has gambled away his living and his wife has left him and he is sitting there penniless and homeless. Tell him that life is going to get better. He has no hope apart from Christ. And that is the effect of sin. And it's something that we all have to wrestle with. Our sin always has a devastating effect in our lives and the lives of those that we love. Think about this. For years, ten sons have to carry around guilt. You ever carried guilt around? It gets heavier by the minute, doesn't it? It's kind of like the tractor pull things. The longer they pull that the thing in the tractor pull, the more the weight goes up. That's what guilt does. Catch that Hartford Fair reference there? I'm in touch. They had to carry guilt. Think about the loss and the pain that Jacob had to carry for years. Joseph's never walking through the door. Think about the upside-down life for Joseph. And you say, PD, give us some hope. It's three minutes till 12, give us some hope. The only hope that I can give to you is the best hope, and it's sure hope, and it's found in Jesus. It's what Joseph's hope was. You see, 
Ultimately, if we don't confess our sin and deal with our sin, and if parents, if you don't teach your children to confess their sin and deal with their sin, and if you don't teach them that God is holy and that our sin separates us, and if you as adults don't realize that in your own life, if you don't deal with your sin the way that the Bible prescribes for us to deal with our sin by owning up to it and throwing ourselves on the mercy of a holy God, then we will never experience the grace that God wants to give to us. The grace that came at a great cost, the death of his son, Christ. You see, the gospel remedies all of this. And what we're going to see through the thread of the rest of Genesis is this. You may not see the word gospel. You may not even see Jesus mentioned in the pages of Genesis. But the only reason that you get from where you do to where you get in Genesis chapter 50 is because Jesus is involved and the gospel is involved. Yeah, I began by saying this, we're all a part of families, and families we sin against one another. You sinned against one another in the car on the way here this morning, I know. You're going to sin against one another tomorrow. And the only way we deal with that is through the grace that comes at the price of Christ giving his life for us. Christ died so that you and I might be freed from sin and from all the destruction that it brings. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wrestling with some sin that you think you have hidden from everybody else. You may have it, you may have it hidden from, from your family. You may have it hidden from your coworkers. You may have it hidden from your pastor. You may have it hidden from, from just about every person here on earth, but the one person that you do not have it hidden from is an almighty God who sees and knows all. You say, you're just saying that to try to scare me. Yeah, I am. I'm going to scare you because I want you to run to the grace of God. I want you to run. I don't want you to walk. I want you to run to the grace of God. And I want you to humble yourself before this God and say, Father, I've sinned. And Father, I need forgiveness. And Father, I need the grace that came because Christ died for me and that he, he took the judgment for all my sins. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Do you realize, unless you think you're better than somebody else, that same grace was good for the brothers of Joseph too? I don't know if they tapped into it or not, but it was available for them. And so this morning, don't just say, yeah, we all have dysfunctional families. That's the way it is going to be. No, deal with the sin. Confront it. Confess it. Confess it to the ones in your family that you need to confess it to. Make it right with God. Make it right with others and experience the grace of God. Will you do that, church? Because if we don't, we've seen this morning the devastating effect of sin on any family. Father, this message would be totally completely hopeless apart from Christ. If it was up to Joseph and his ability to get himself out of the pit and to turn his life around, there's no hope. But I'm so thankful that, that you are a God who loves us. You're a God who's directly involved. Even when we're doing the right thing and, and we seem to suffer for it, you're a God who's right there, just like you were with Elisha and his servant in Dothan. You were just there with Joseph in Dothan as well. Thank you for being a God who's with us in our trials. I pray that we would humble ourselves before you. 
that we would own up to our sin. For those in this room who, who, who don't know Christ as their Savior, may today be the day that they would know Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.